I think. It's just gone past three o'clock now, so we can start. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Bhutang Tamang Sankang Namasami. So for today's sutta, uh, as you all may know, that every of these suttas is usually either put on YouTube or it's put on our website. So after so many years of doing this class, we've done most of them. So every now and again you have to look, what have I missed out? And one of the ones I missed out... <coughs> One of the most obvious was the very first teaching of the Buddha, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutra, the teaching which those of you who know the history of Buddhism, after the Buddha's enlightenment at Bodhgaya, thinking about who would he teach, and uh, a few of the uh, most prominent suspects to teach had already passed away, so he thought of his first five disciples who had abandoned him when he started giving up his asceticism. And so that they, uh, the Buddha thought, I can teach those. So he travelled to uh, Benares, you know, which is uh, maybe a month's walk or something. He travelled to Benares, and there he met his uh, first five disciples. And of course, they rejected him at first. But then they saw that from his demeanour, he had obviously got something. And so he gave them this sort of teaching, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutra always known in all traditions as the first teaching of the newly enlightened Buddha and basically put the basic teachings down. And uh, from this teaching we had the first stream winner, Anya Kondanya. So it's a very powerful teaching, obviously one of my favourites, and it has some uh, great teachings, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. There's also other little nuggets of wisdom hidden in this. So this is the teaching today, the Dhamma Chaka. Hawatna Sutta, turning the wheel of the Dhamma. Thus have I heard on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. And Baranasi is Benares. These days it's called Faranasi. The B's and V's seem to become almost interchangeable. There the Blessed One addressed the monks of the group of five. Thus, because these two extremes should not be followed, by one who has gone forth from home to homelessness. What to? Now, I'll just do the translation here, but I'm going to pick it apart. The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ennoble, unbeneficial. And number two, the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. These are the two extremes. So the first teaching the Buddha ever gave was the middle way between these two. And those are the two extremes. Now the first extreme, pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, what does that mean? The Pali word is karma sukhalikanu yoga. Anu yoga literally means like two oxen which is tied together. That what literally means what anu yoga. The word yoke in English you know, comes from that yoga. It's something which you apply yourself to, you tie yourself to. And so the two uh, 
tie together. So it literally does mean tying yourself to this type of practice. And what is that type of practice? Karma Sukha Alika. And Karma Sukha, the word karma, this is not the, unfortunately, it's, you can't uh, hear the distinction between Pali. Uh, so there's two words which pronounce like karma, like the law of karma, the actions. And the other karma is K-long A-M-A, karma. And it is a word which has no, uh, no um, counterpart in the English language because it does just refer to the world of the five senses as opposed to the realm of the mind. Now, of course, in the Western world, we just totally abandon the idea of the mind being a separate world. And so, you know, we think of the world. So what we think of the world is this karma loka, the world of the five senses. But in Buddhism, it's understood there is the other world, the world of the mind. So this literally does mean karma sukha, and alika means like really, you can say pursuit, or um, infatuation with, or seeking of pleasure in the world of the five senses. So the pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures doesn't really, you know, sort of... Um, cut the mustard, as they say. It doesn't really get into the heart of that term. It does mean uh, seeking happiness in the five sense world. And the word which is low, vulgar, the way of worldings, ennoble, unbeneficial. You may like to know that the word low in uh, English, again, that is not its real meaning, low. It is much worse than that means it's filthy, low, mean, vulgar. And the word is hina. And of course, <laughs> you all know the word hina from the hina-yana. The hina-yana, the word hina is a very gross word. It's actually quite offensive. And if any of you are in the library, you can just go and look up the word hina in a Pali English dictionary, or even better, in the Sanskrit dictionary, and you hear all these incredibly bad words. It doesn't mean low. It means yucky, mean, coarse, um, ugly. Every sort of mean word comes in hina. So when we say the low here, it doesn't really mean really so scraping the barrel type low. So this is, especially this is for one who's on the path of being enlightened, who's seeking sort of uh, something much deeper. So the pursuit of pleasure in the five sense world, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, and that means an area, not, one, not part of the Aryan path. Noble is like the noble ones. And unbeneficial means it has nothing to do, it doesn't help the path to which a person is committed to, to becoming wise and enlightened. And that's the first one, basically the pursuit of pleasure in the five senses. And the second extreme is pursuit of, they say self-mortification, but even that is a bit too uh, limiting a translation of Atta Gilamata Nu Yoga. Again, Anu Yoga is a practice which you commit yourself to. And Atta Gilamata, Atta is the word same as Anatta, Atta, the self. Something which literally Kilamata means to tire, to weary, to exhaust yourself. These practices which really exhaust and tire yourself. 
It doesn't mean such extreme things as fasting or just uh, meditating on anything which literally exhausts you. And that's a very beautiful nuance to that word and that particular part because you know, to meditate you have to have energy, you have to have reasonably good health, whatever you can do to give that energy in the body so that you can transfer that into a bright mind. So Atagana Yoga would also include such things as not sleeping enough or forcing the body until afterwards it gets weak and tired. That is also part of the extreme. So and I'll say it again, Atta, you know the self, it literally doesn't mean the um, metaphysical self, it just means you know, the way you would use the word self in English. You know, that I'm looking after myself, I'm caring for myself. It just means you know, this body-mind thing. And Atta Gilamata is actually to tire, to weary. So when you get that feeling for that word, it's the things which weary, which tired, which exhaust yourself, which take away the energy. That is one of the extremes. Obviously, if it is um, what they put here as self-mortification, of course that does weary you and tire you, make you sick. But you know, that's just one part of what the Buddha meant by Atta Kinamatanu Yoga. So those are the two extremes. And the Buddha says, without viewing towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, which is how the Buddha always would um, call himself, and the Tathagata either means the thus come or the thus gone. You know, it, uh, usually people say the thus gone or gone to thusness. Has awakened to the middle way, which instead of giving rise to so which is noble, things which are unnoble or low, vulgar way of worldlings, instead of giving way to things which are uh, tiring, painful, ignoble, this the way which the Buddha has, uh, has woken up to, gives rise to vision, gives rise to knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge and to enlightenment, to Nibbāna. So there is another way which doesn't give rise to tiredness, doesn't give rise to indulgence, gives rise to seeing, knowledge, peace, and the word for peace is upasana. It's a beautiful word. I mean, the mind being really still at peace and even, even amongst um, uh, worldly turmoil. And the direct knowledge, which means like seeing it for yourself, not having to believe in it from others, but direct understanding and to enlightenment and nibbana. And of course, what is that middle way awakened to by the Buddha, which goes rise to all these wonderful things, which leads to Nibbana? And it is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and of course you know, I prefer right stillness to right concentration. That monks is the middle way awakened to by the Buddha, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, the direct knowledge to enlightenment and Nibbana. You can see here he says this bhikkhus because he's talking to the five monks. So why do you think it's called right view or right stillness or right effort? And it's because and in all, all of these there can be a way of uh, even view which is a wrong view, a wrong intention, a wrong speech. We all know examples of wrong speech 
and even like wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration, or wrong stillness. And of course, one of the examples of wrong stillness, you know, the type of stillness which has got nothing to do with the path, is that's wrong stillness. <laughs> In other words, you can still say it's still, but it's not going to be conducive to the path. And this is the Eightfold Path. Now, I'm going to pause there for any questions on the middle path. Please also understand why it was the Buddha's first teaching before he even got on to the Four Noble Truths. And of course the reason was the history of the Buddha's search for enlightenment. Six years of asceticism, six years of struggling, and then when he was getting nowhere with all of that hard work and effort, you know, he decided to take it easy and when the five disciples saw that he wasn't apparently striving anymore, then they gave up on him. They thought he's given up the pursuit for enlightenment. And so they went their way, the Buddha went his way. And of course the Buddha's way worked and so the first teaching was telling them, said, look, all that striving which you and I were doing, now that is the Atakalamatanu Yoga. Now that's the wrong path. Returning to the home and having all the sensuality, that is the wrong path. There's something in between there. It's not indulging in the senses and it's not being cruel to your body. There's this beautiful middle way. And that is such incredible powerful insight of the Buddha. And it's something which does distinguish Buddhism from other paths. Simplicity but comfort of life. A middle way. Things which don't exhaust and tire you make you sick, but not indulging either in the five senses. And I always mention the five senses because sometimes uh, when you have happiness in the sixth sense, people think, oh, you get attached to that. That is not what the Buddha meant. If you get um, inspired by seeing a great act of kindness or generosity, then you, you allow yourself to enjoy that. Because that's a joy of the mind. That inspires you and uh, also increases your um, pursuit of the goal yourself. Things like inspiration, joy in listening to the Dhamma, uh, just a wonderful um, sense of um, peace you get by keeping precepts. All of those things, and of course the joys of meditation, all of those things are not included in the extreme of someone who indulges in sensory pleasure. Because that sensory pleasure is only looking at the five senses. The sixth sense is exempted you know, from the two extremes, often the first extreme. Is that quite clear? So you can enjoy the pleasures of the mind, inspirations, wonderful acts of kindness which sometimes make you cry. That is part of the path. That is the middle way. Yes, John. I know that's another one which I often say that this is where uh, we get the quote, the saying, thank God for Buddhism. <laughs> and the, 
That came from this young monk, Kadipala, a long time ago, when I was explaining that a person who's just become enlightened, you can imagine, if anyone had a deep meditation, imagine how still and silent the mind would be. And basically that there would be no, no reason to teach. They're just so peaceful and still. You do need someone from, come from outside to actually to boot up the system and just to get it going again. And that was, um, uh, what's his name again? Uh, Brahma Sahampati, yeah. Now Brahma Sahampati was actually an old friend of the Buddha from the previous life as a monk under Kasapa. And uh, if you look up Sahampati, and there, yeah, so he was actually not a Brahma, he was an Anagami, a non-returner. So these were, in his previous life, the Buddha was a monk, a Jyotipana, under Kasapa the Buddha, that's in the suttas. So it was uh, Sahampati being also a monk with uh, the Buddha under Kasapa, previous life. So this uh, Sahampati, he became an Anagami. And so, you know, he was, saw his old friend, uh, being reborn as uh, Siddhartha Gautama, and meditating under the Bodhi tree, got enlightened. And you know, he came down to congratulate his old mate. Well done, you're a Buddha. And that's where he asked him to teach. And now Brahma, sometimes people, that's a word for a god. So sometimes in some translations they say the god, uh, Sahampati. And it was the god Sahampati who just asked a question, teach. That's all that was needed, just to ask. Just like when the Buddha passed away. All that was needed was an answer, oh, I'll live on a bit longer, and he would have. Just needed that that little bit of uh, uh, seed intention from somebody else. So because, and I think this is absolutely accurate, if Brahma Sahambati hadn't asked the Buddha to teach, he wouldn't have. He'd have been a Pacheka Buddha, a Saran Buddha. So that's why we say, thank God for Buddhism. <laughs> it's only a joke, because it's thank Anagami Sahambati for Buddhism. Okay, let's get going. That's, I love those sorts of questions. Thank you, John. Okay. So, you said this is the middle way, the Eightfold Path. So anyone asks what is the middle way, it's the Eightfold Path. Which leads to vision, gives to knowledge, leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So the Eightfold Path also has to be, you know, avoiding those two extremes. The Eightfold Path is not ascetic should not be something which tires and exhausts you and makes you sick. If it is, it's not the Eightfold Path. It's not an Eightfold Path in which you indulge in the sense pleasures. Otherwise, it's not the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the middle way. It's identical with the middle way. And so it has to be avoiding those two extremes. So when you're practicing the Eightfold Path, if it's exhausting you, tiring you, giving you physical pain, then there's something there which is wrong. It can't be the middle way, it's Atta Gilamatanu Yoga. Or if you think, oh, I can practice the Eightfold Path and still, you know, watch my movies, have my sex, you know, do whatever I like, then again, it's not the Eightfold Path. It has to be avoiding both extremes. So, and after elucidating the Eightfold Path as the middle way, then the Buddha goes on to the, the big teachings, because remember the context of the Buddha's search was specifically trying to find an end to suffering. Remember that uh, classic tale of leaving the palace and seeing the old man, the sick man, the dead man, and then the monk? 
and just realizing just the predicament of life and that particular type of suffering, even though living in a palace with so much um, comforts and sensory pleasures, still the old age sickness and death uh, just uh, put um, suffering into whatever he was doing. So he was trying to find a way out of that suffering. And so, suffering was, dukkha was the, the part of his pursuit, which is one of the reasons why he put his uh, most powerful teachings in the form of the Four Noble Truths about suffering. So he said, now, this monks is the Noble Truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Uh, I'll say it first of all then, and I'll analyze afterwards. Aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. Now, first of all, now when I read this, I just stopped at the first one. Birth is suffering. That's actually the most profound of all of those. In other words, once you're born, you're stuffed. So don't think that somehow, as a human being, you're going to have a nice happy life. <laughs> Just by being born, you know, you've made a wrong decision. <laughs> so when a person is born with these you know, uh, senses and bodies and mind, there's going to be a lot of difficulties for you. And of course you have the ordinary difficulties which uh, people are coming next, you know, like old age and sickness. But, you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, if we're smart, we can avoid those things. Jim Morrison, live fast, die young. He never sort of worried about old age because he died, was it 26 or 30 or something? You know, sleeping over the doors. <laughs> but, but that doesn't really work. But he said that illness is suffering, death is suffering. Now you get sort of what is really suffering, that union with what is displeasing is suffering. What, in other words, getting what you don't like is suffering. And of course, doesn't matter how wise you are, doesn't matter how skillful you are, doesn't matter how educated you are, or how powerful, even if you're the President of the United States, you still don't have the power to not be with what's suffering and displeasing. We often get what we don't like. And separation from what we do like is suffering. In other words, I know what I like, I know where I want to be, and I'm not there, it's suffering. So all of that you can see, you know, is something which you just cannot control. And this is part of life. So we're often with what we don't like, and we're often separated from what we do like, is suffering. And sometimes they say here, they just put them all two together. Not to get what, not to get what one wants is suffering. And even you notice, even just wanting, as soon as you want something, you are separated from what you like. The very act of wanting something is suffering. Because as soon as I want something, I'm here and I don't want to be here, I want something else, I want something more. So when you start wanting something, that's suffering, until you either get what you want, so that particular suffering is relieved for a little while, or more than likely you don't get what you want. But if you do get what you want, it doesn't end there, you want something more. And that's a problem of life. So the wanting 
is a suffering. It's, it means you have no peace. Exactly. In other words, to have the freedom from desire, not the freedom of desire. To want for nothing. It's a hard thing to do, to want for nothing. People try that, they meditate. <laughs> and all these wants come up. There's a reason for that, but that's another talk. So, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, now the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. Now the five aggregates, this is one way of looking at the human body and mind as the physical body, that's Rupa Kanda, the Vedana, which again hasn't got an, an English translation, it is a quality of pleasure, pain or in-between with every one of the six senses. So beauty, ugliness with the sense of the eye, fragrance and stinky with the nose. So every particular sense has a different word for what is pleasurable and what is painful. But that effective quality which gives every sensory experience uh, pleasure or painful in all its variable forms, that is what call, is called Vedana. And Sanya is a perception which is why we look at a part of what we experience and we say girl, boy, we say friend, enemy. This is the way we perceive the world. And much of that perception, again, is totally conditioned and that's an important part of us. And then we have the Sankara. The most important part of Sankara is, this is the fourth candle, is Chaitanya otherwise known as the will, the choice. But the Chaitanya also, sorry, the Sankara also includes things like emotions and thoughts. But in particular the will. And the lastly, Vinyana, the last of the, uh, of the five Khandas, the five aggregates here, are consciousnesses. I would like to make it plural because that is accurate to the Pali it's not consciousness. You look it up, what it's um, explained, it's consciousnesses. Every one of the six senses has a different type of consciousness. And we always call it consciousness, singular, and that's one of the reasons why we mistake what's really going on. Consciousnesses, six of them, and those are the five candors. So the Buddha is actually saying, these five candors are suffering. To have a body is suffering. And many of you will know that, especially if you're over 60 or 70. Actually, even if you're younger than that, it's still suffering. And Vedana, the pleasure and pain. Yeah, I like the pleasurable stuff, but I always get the painful stuff. I get a bit of each until you realize that all pleasure is just a space between two moments of suffering. All suffering is a space between two moments of pleasure. You can't have one without the other. So you can't just have all pleasure. Psychologically impossible. So because of that, that means Vedana is suffering. Sanya, perception, how hard is it? You know, someone was telling me about, oh, just, you know, their parents gave them a very hard time when they're young. And they're trying to forgive them, but it's so hard to do that. So hard to change a perception, you know, which has been conditioned into you for such a long time. And that's why, you know, uh, people 
can actually spend a lot of money with psychologists who can change their perceptions. But it's tough work, you know, changing, making them see not this way, but another way. And so perception is a lot of suffering. And of course, Chaitanya, I love this one, Chaitanya is suffering. And that's actually why you can't be still in meditation. There's something inside you, always makes you do something different, do something else. I call Chaitanya the, the sadistic prison guard who never allows the, the prisoner, you, to be still for one moment. You're in your cell and you're, I'm going to be still. Get out, go out, do this, do this. You need something more, go and get that. And that Jaden, that will, it always give you a hard time until it totally stops. And then you have some pleasure. And of course the emotions, a lot of suffering. Yes, it would be nice if we always have lovely emotions, but that can't be done. And nature, they change. And lastly, consciousnesses. Consciousnesses, the six of them, are suffering. It says that specifically. When I saw the Buddha say that, I thought, wow, that's, that's neat. The reason is, it's because they're irritations of the mind. To see is an irritation. To hear. Have you ever gone into the shopping mall? I had to go into the shopping mall about two months ago. What was it to do? I tried to go to the post office, I think. Or start to do something in Rockingham. Ah, I hate going into shopping centers. The, the sights are just so coarse. And I don't know about you, maybe because I spent too much time in a monastery and just a very peaceful mind. But sure, the, the sights there, the impingement on the eyes is just so much suffering. And you know, also sometimes when you live in a very peaceful place and then you hear sort of loud noise, that is just suffering as well. And you, know, you can understand that all of the sensory impingements, they are just like that, they're disturbances of the beautiful stillness. If peace is the highest happiness, you can understand why consciousness is suffering. And to be still. And the, and the consciousness is disappearing one by one. Oh, that's so much bliss. So anyway, that's one of the reasons why people go to sleep, is bliss. Do you enjoy going to sleep at night? Because much of your consciousness is taken away. So that's one of the reasons why the five aggregates are suffering. Now they say here, the five aggregates subject to clinging. This is called upadana, panchupa, panchupadana kanda. And that causes a lot of problems for people. They think, oh, as long as you've got no clinging, the five candors are okay. And another sutra, the Buddha said, the five candors and the five candors affected by clinging are one and the same. You're not really different. The only reason they say, it's not clinging is the wrong word here as well. The word should be like fuel. It's upadana. Upadana means also it's a fuel. And they use this, the best simile is the candle, upadana's, the wax. The electric light, upadana's the electricity. It takes up, it sucks up the electricity, sucks up the wax, you know, to give it fuel, you know, to continue on. So the last lot of candors are the fuel for this present candor. Now this is where this present set of candors come from, from the previous ones. They cause it, they fuel it, that's why they're called upadana. Candors. They're just here right now, and these candors right now, you know, your body, your uh, what's it called, Vedana, your perceptions, your Jadana, your consciousnesses, these are causing the next ones. So they're fuel as well as results.
Yes. So what is, what is the um, work of the mind that returns to the source? I, I, is it Yoni Manasekara? With respect to the five khandhas, what, what, how do they fit together? What is the work that, to be done there? Well, again, the, the Manasekara you know, is... You know, I would try and give it a, a special meaning, but Manasekara means just the work of the mind, like how you use your mental faculties. And most important, the, the Yonisa, where it comes from, the causes of what happens. The whole of Buddhism is all about, yeah, you know, we've got suffering. Why? What causes this? Where does it come from? So we've got consciousness. Where does it come from? How does it arise? So this is like Yonisa. So a lot of times, people actually look at the consequences of things. Well, here I am now. Just how am I going to get out of this? And instead of saying, how do I get into this in the first place? So how do we go into this? That's going backwards to the cause of things, the origin of things. And that particular point was made to me so well in an introductory essay by Venal Bhikkhu Bodhi, where he made this very beautiful um, distinction, which when I got it, I thought, wow, that just explains so much of Buddhism, between Dhamma and its opposites of Atta. Like you've got happiness, suffering, you've got light, dark. The word Dhamma has an opposite. And it's not sort of you no know, stupidity or anything. Dhamma is the cause of things, where things come from. You know, the origin of things, you know, the source, what the why. And the atta is the where to. Where does this all lead to? And those two are just you no know, antonyms. And when you get that idea, you understand you know, why the the commentaries are called atta guitar, you know, the verses of the meaning, where it all leads to and the explanations. But the Dhamma is the source of everything. Now one Dhamma, one idea, which is the source of where we're from and why we have these sufferings. That's why they have the Four Noble Truths, some which is a source, like a law of physics, like a law of the mind. And from that law of physics, the law of the mind, you can work out how the whole universe evolves. So, so, so does it essentially involve the paying of attention back into yourself in the moment of meditation and well, I guess trying to understand the actions and consequences yeah. outside of meditation. Is that the story? Yeah, it, it is more, yeah, it is that and much more. For example, in the old Satipatthana Sutras, you know, they have something there, the arising and passing away of stuff. Now, of course, that has been misinterpreted and if you actually look closer into the Sutras, Satipatthana Sangyuta, it said, absolutely so clearly, the whole sutra on arising and passing away, what it means is what causes these things to arise? Where do they come from? The passing away is what causes these things to disappear? So even in the Satipatthana, it's like seeing the causes of things. And why do they disappear? Now that is the Yonisamanasikara. So, you know, you have some suffering, some grief, or even some thought in the meditation. Why? So you don't look at the thought and try and get rid of it because it will just come back again. Why do you have that thought to begin with? Why were you disturbed? So that is Yonasi, you go backwards into the causes of things. That's seeing the arising. And it happens in meditation, sometimes you have a very peaceful meditation, everything subsides. Afterwards, why? What was the cause of the good meditations? That is Yonasi Manasikara. When you're really happy, there's all sorts of different types of happiness in the world. 
And when you're really happy, really content, those high moments of your life, why? And that's actually you find out that, as you were saying, these are moments of deep contentment. And you notice that so that's when the desires and wants temporarily vanished. You didn't want anything in the whole world. Now that's the Yodhisthi Manasakura, to see the cause of your good happiness. Thank you, Bhante. Bhante, one more question. Yeah. Um, thoughts in the mind, emotions in the mind, um, some sankaras, I guess yeah. is what you're talking about. They exist in the context of a background when you're watching the mind in meditation. Mm -hmm. Is that background an appearance to the mind or is it something that leads down deep into the source of... It, the background is a, is a good perception. So it's just a perception which we can make up which helps us, it's a useful one, in the sense that it... so it's not inherent, uh, but what it does mean, if you see the background as well as the thoughts, you don't get sucked into the thoughts as the only thing. Do we make the background as yes, well as the thoughts? Of course you do, yes. So that when, when, when consciousness, when you, when you become very, very still, that too disappears? Absolutely. That's a kagata. Thank you. Nothing left, just one. So, anyway, that's the truth of suffering. Now, of course, as you were saying, Yonasi Manasikura, where does it come from? That's the second noble truth. So you can understand what suffering is, but why? And something a bit more deeper than just getting born. Actually, what it was actually, why we get born. This, monks, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the cause. It is this craving, this wanting, this lack of contentment, which leads to renewed existence. And people who say that, oh, Buddhism doesn't teach rebirth, it's a renewed existence, it's a renewed birth. Renewed existence, rebirth, where's it gone? A accompanied, it's a craving which, it's a, sorry, I'll, I'll focus on this again. It is this craving which leads to rebirth or renewed existence. That craving is a cause of suffering. In other words, you're born, you can't get rid of the suffering except by making sure you don't get born again. So the cause of suffering is the craving, the wanting, which gets you reborn. And I've just finished the, the last bit of the paragraph. And that craving is accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight now here, now there. And in essence, it is the three cravings. The cravings for sensory pleasure, that's only one of them, of which causes wanting. And the craving to be, to exist. That's a, the best one. Because even if people haven't got any sensory pleasures, you know, they're old and they're dying, still they, they'd rather be with pain than not be at all. It is because of the fear. We don't know anything except being. And our last thing we'll ever defend is our existence. It is, but the, the way you overcome that is really neat. It's the only way I know you're to overcome that is you get into such deep meditation you start to disappear. And that's always scary when parts of who you think you are you know, fall away. But what overcomes the fear is the sheer pleasure. You know, yeah, you know, you're, you're vanishing, you're disappearing, but it's so, so beautiful. It's really cool to vanish. So what the hell, I'm going for it. 
That's basically what happens. So anyway, the, the craving to be, and of course that is a powerful one. And the last one is, it is a, uh, a part of the craving to be, which is a craving, craving for extermination. It's a me trying to kill myself. It is what I, uh, using a quote from Oliver Twist, it's like a man trying to eat his own head. Which is a beautiful quote from Oliver Twist, you know, from Charles Dickens. Trying to imagine a man eating his own head. You know, you can't get rid of yourself. Because you are trying to do it. So the craving to get Nibbana, to extinguish yourself, to euthanize yourself, will never work. You sort of almost got it, but you know, you're going about it the wrong way. It's another sense of I wanting something. Okay, you got the microphone. Sorry? A craving. I think it's probably because beings craved. The first being. They always say that the first being is not the one who created the universe. The first person who arose in this universe, they say it's a very fascinating argument. The Buddha said, oh, the first being arose in the universe, hey, there's no one here before me. Here's this universe, I must have created it. I must have made it. So it was a god expanded the universe. But the god is not the firstborn. It's just the first person. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So it always keeps expanding, simply because people keep doing too much. That's, um, that's what actually happens when you do meditation, if you've got reasonably good, reasonably good focus, attention. When you focus your attention on knowing, yeah. you turn your mind, your attention back on the experience of knowing, yeah. after a while, what, I, what my personal experience of this is, is a disintegration, the sense of my sense of self just starts to slowly disintegrate. Who, who's doing the practice slowly disintegrates and it goes to deeper yeah. and deeper levels of stillness. But it's, it's kind of like having a mini nervous breakdown. I've said that to you before. It but is. it's okay. It's, it's not like it's both scary and blissful at the exactly, same time. Yeah. But it's very scary and that's why many people stop. So they'd rather exist and have suffering and actually disappear. And you know how I teach, and I teach straight from the suttas. When I say, though, what happens after an arahat disappears? They've gone. So that's, that's, that, that's negative, that's, that's cold, that's, I don't want to do that. And so fair enough, but that's what happens. And after a while, when you've had enough, <laughs> then you also want to poof out of existence. I mean, a real emptiness. You've got to not, uh, like the Mahayana, say the emptiness of emptiness. Not even emptiness is left. Oh, the emptiness is scary, but it's blissful. Don't you like going to the ocean, seeing just the ocean with no, no ships on there? Totally empty. Or going out and seeing the stars at night, and going to places between the stars where there's nothing. Vast emptiness. To me, it's really cooling and peaceful. So, different perceptions. 
That's why in the said in the hall I gave a talk about space two weeks ago. In this hall here there's not very much many things. We don't have photos and, and paintings on the walls. We don't have uh, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment on the, the ceiling like on the Sistine Chapel. You know, it's just a white wall on the top, white ceiling, just a dull carpet. That's on purpose to try and keep it empty as best we possibly can to celebrate space. People are boring to me, liberating. Anyway, let's go to the third noble truth. So, the origin of suffering is the craving which leads to renewed existence. Now, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, it is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving the craving which leads to renewed existence. When that stops, fades away, remainderless, nothing left, then that is the end of suffering. Uh, and how is that done? It is the giving up, relinquishing it, freedom from it, non-reliance of it. And those are the four ways of letting go which I've given a whole talk on. Chaga. And if you want to know what chaga is, Look at the monk next to me. His name is Venerable Chaga. <laughs> and Chaga is like literally giving up, giving a donation. You don't expect anything in return. Meditating, not expecting anything in return for giving an hour to meditation. Going on a retreat, not expecting results. What Ajahn Chah used to say you meditate to let go not to gain things. It's a chaga, it's a giving away. You've got enough stuff already. So you're empty, giving away. That's chaga. Patinisaka is literally chucking away, throwing away. Just like on, I don't know what day, you get your rubbish bins taken away by the council. But it's like putting all your rubbish. And wouldn't it be wonderful if someone could take it away? If we had a box or a big bin at the Buddhist Society where you can put your defilements every week and we can get sort of Lin to take them away or whoever else is the caretaker. That's Paddy Nisiga, throwing things away. It's a bit more aggressive than just, just giving. Oh yeah, Roman Catholic Confession, but sometimes that's good. For, I shouldn't, no, no jokes, no jokes, Ajahn Brahm, because I've got lots of jokes about Catholic Confession. That's such a marvellous area for jokes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> throw things away. And the next one is, what is it? Um, Chaga Pachinisaka Muti. And that's freedom. And I think the, the best example I had about that is you know, the difference between being in a monastery and being in prison. And the only difference is, because actually physically, even you go on a retreat, it's not as comfortable as in prison. You know, this, ask this guy next to me, you go, how many meals do you get in prison? Three or four, five? Three, but you can get stuff in the afternoon. and stuff. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, and you get your own TV set, and you get all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> and when you get all that other stuff, we don't get that in monastery. So, 
Why do people like coming to monasteries or even to retreat centers? And if you really wanted to have a much happier time, instead of going on the nine day retreat, go to the nine day prison sentence. <laughs> well, the only reason is, is because if you want to be there, you don't want to be there. There's a wonderful insight there. Any place you don't want to be is a prison. If you don't want to be here, you get bored or it's too hot or you're tired, you're aching. Oh, I want this to finish so I can go home. Then this place, this hall is a prison. And I know that because you know, I travel around and have an interesting life. But sometimes you go into five-star hotels. Once I went to a six-star hotel in Japan. Six-star. I hated it. I was in this room, had all these incredible things, jacuzzis and TV sets and mini bars which I couldn't use. And, you know, I just, I saw, I wanted to go outside, have a walk, but the host said, no, you've got to stay inside because we know where you are. And to me, it was like, it was a prison. And I thought, amazing, you can actually experience a six-star hotel room as a prison. And it's only because I didn't want to be there. And when I realized that, I said, oh, okay, this is good enough, I can meditate here, it's quiet, it's got a nice air con, so I could use that. So I changed it from being a prison to be like being a, a kuti in a monastery, just by changing perception. But I noticed that any place you can make a prison if you want to be somewhere else. And freedom, being free is wanting to be wherever you are, not wanting to be somewhere else. That's letting go. So I always say that in meditation, if you're having a, you're dull and sleeping, I don't want to be sleepy, I want to be in jhanas, then that is not letting go. I'm happy to be sleepy. I'm happy to have my mind being all over the place. If you're happy to be here, then you're free. Then you're letting go. And the last word, analia, is, literally does mean alia, you know that word from the Himalaya, there's also another state in East India, Meghalaya. Alia, Himalaya is the place where the snows settle. Hima is snow, Alia, the place where snows settle. So Alia is where something settles, where it finds a roosting, like a, a bird at night finds a roosting on a tree. That's Alia. And An-Alia is where there's no place it can settle. There's no place anything can stick. That is the fourth way of letting go. So the simile in the Buddha is, having like a place, a mind like a, like a, a lotus flower. Urinate on it, the urine just falls off, it doesn't leave any residue. You can't smell it afterwards. Or you pour you know, some perfume on the lotus and it just all runs off and you can't smell the perfume afterwards. So pleasures and pains, praise and blame, it all falls off you. You have a mind which nothing settles, it is. An alaya. That's the other way of letting go. And it's incredible, there's little four little things there. Sometimes you just pass over them, but there's a whole Dhamma teachings just in those four little words. That is the end of suffering. You know, just giving away things. Doing something, not expecting anything back. You know, giving someone a gift, giving someone a lift back home. You don't expect thanks, you don't expect anything at all. Just give for the sake of giving. It's letting go. Throwing away possessions, mental possessions, meditation possessions, physical possessions. Throwing things away. 
and uh, just wanting to be here, wherever that happens to be, even if you're sick and dying, wanting to be here. Actually, I'll just, hopefully Ainsley and Barbara listen to this. They talk, Barbara told me a nice little story, anecdote uh, today at lunchtime. She was visiting England, one of Ainsley's old mates from Malaysia, in a really, really old age, sick, having to be hoisted, you know, to get into a chair, have to have his bum wiped, incontinent at both ends, she said. And he was really suffering. And uh, Barbara reminded her, look, just say, this is good enough. You know, you've got a place to stay, a nice bed, people looking after you, they're being kind to you, you've got food, and air con to keep you warm or cold. Just keep saying to yourself, good enough, this is good enough, this is good enough. And this poor guy in the hospital, you got it. He said, oh, yeah, you're right, this is good enough. And two days later, he died. Good enough, just in time. So he's a very fortunate man to get that teaching, just at the right time. That means you're letting go, you're not fighting. It's good enough. So that is the way to Nibbana, the ending of craving. And the noble truth, the last one of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Yeah, you can get there, but how do you actually learn how to give up, not expecting things in return? How do you learn how to be able to feel free wherever you happen to be? It takes a training, a practice, and that's the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering, the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention. I always love just pausing on right intention because that is so overlooked. Intentions of letting go, nekama, of kindness, Awayapada, and of gentleness. And I love emphasizing that because it's usually passed over. The intentions of, you're doing this to let go of stuff, not to gain things. Of kindness, compassion. Just basic Buddhas when sometimes people forget and they just go hitting each other over the back in retreats. Ooh. And gentleness. Take your time, be gentle. There's not a, a warrior type religion. Yes. Yes, right intention, always. Letting go of the world. Being kind to yourself and kind to the world. Being gentle. That was always typical Buddhism, what it was known for in history. Sometimes people forget that. That's why sometimes meditation is one thing and a Buddhist practice outside in the world is another thing. Uh, no, they, they go together. And, where were we? Uh, the right intention. Then, right speech, action, livelihood. It's important, you have to keep your virtue. And the right effort, right mid, uh, mindfulness, and right stillness. The Eightfold Path, that's a way of letting go. Of craving. So, those eight factors, they should put them in the context. This should be lessening your craving not making more craving. Otherwise it's not right. It should be done under the umbrella of throwing things away, of the sense of freedom, being happy to be here wherever you happen to be. And also of being someone to which nothing sticks, especially no attainments stick to you. So, there we go, the Four Noble Truths. See, brilliant teaching, you can go on forever on those ones, that's the essence. And now we get a little summary. 
This is the noble truth of suffering, thus monks in regard to things unheard before there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. And so it is saying that you know, he understood the noble truth of suffering and he also understood the noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. The most important word is fully, it's actually pari, nyayang. Nyay means to know, pari means fully, like it's similar between nibbana and parinibbana. Nibbana means this thing ceasing. Parinibbana means totally, fully, 100% nibbana ceased. Needs to be fully understood. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. And now the Buddha says his great statement, this noble truth of suffering has been fully understood. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. And elsewhere the Buddha made this great saying, the only reason why people aren't enlightened is because they haven't fully understood suffering. 90%, 99%, is not enough. It has to be the fully understood suffering. There's always one little part of you, of life, of the universe, which is saying everywhere else yeah, is suffering. But I've got my, what I call the ultimate retirement home of you, the place where you can escape from suffering. And you don't give suffering to that place. And that's the reason why people don't get enlightened, because they haven't fully seen that the whole lot is suffering. It's like having an apple. Yeah, you know most of it is rotten, but you think I can cut the rotten part away and keep the good part. You haven't fully understood that the whole of the apple is rotten. It's only when the whole of the apple, fully seen as rotten, you throw the whole lot away. And you are part of that apple. So when it comes to all the rotten apples in the Buddhist society, we're all rotten apples, me included, sorry. <laughs> Of course it's overwhelming. This is stuff which kicks you up the backside and turns you upside down. And wow, this is no simple stuff. You know, when you start to sort of contemplate this, oh, this is revolutionary. But you know, it's what the Buddha said. And sometimes you see what the Buddha said, crikey, you don't mince his words. But the point is that once you see it and start doing this, you're free, you're happy. And that's the nice thing about seeing sort of monks and nuns, people who've done it. You know, it's pretty, you know, they're not depressed people. Actually, they're pretty happy and just having a good time. So and it's a good advert for doing this, <laughs> seeing someone like an Ajahn Chah. Well, if that's you know, what happens if I do all this stuff, yeah, it's scary and a bit overwhelming, but if that's where I end up, yeah, I'm going for it. And the noble truth of, noble truth of the origin of suffering Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So we understood the noble truth, the origin of suffering. And the noble truth, the origin of suffering, is to be abandoned. Thus, because in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light, the noble truth, the origin of suffering, has been abandoned. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. Does that mean you have to abandon the noble truth? <laughs> cause when it says the noble truth of the cause of suffering, that means the craving. So he said the craving which gives renewed existence, that is what has to be abandoned. 
So sometimes when you translate word for word, you miss the meaning. What has to be abandoned is the craving. What do you want craving for? Let it go. The next one, a noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Thus monks in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. And the noble truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. The noble truth of the cessation of suffering has been realized. Thus, because in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So, you know, the cessation of suffering, you know, nibbana, has to be realized. And realized means experience for yourself, not just understood, but realized, got there done it, craving has gone. And lastly, the noble truth of the way leading to cessation of suffering, thus amongst in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. The noble truth of the way leading to cessation of suffering is to be developed. Thus amongst in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. And the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering has been developed. Thus, monks, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. That's the Bhavana. You may have heard of like Bhavana Society, that's Bhante Chi's organization. You know, when we had Santi Monastery, you know, when I was in charge of it, I called it Chitta Bhavana. When people asked me, you know, what do I teach Samatha Vipassana, I said, I don't teach either, I teach Bhavana. It's a development of the Eightfold Path, which is more than just meditation, it's developing your precepts, the right speech, action, livelihood, developing your views. So it's the whole development of the whole path. So that's, the Buddha said, it is to be developed, he has developed it, it's done. And so long, monks, as my knowledge and vision of these Four Noble Truths, as they really are in their three phases, if you're knowing what they are, knowing what's to be done with them and knowing you've done what has to be done with them. Like the first noble truth, I know the truth and it is to be fully understood and I have fully understood it. That's the, you know, the three ways. As long as these four noble truths, as they really are in the three phases and twelve aspects, four times three is twelve, as long as it was not thoroughly purified in this way, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, maras and brahmas, in its generation, with its ascetics and brahmans, its devas and humans, in other words, with the world as it was known at that time. But when my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths, as they really are in their three phases and twelve aspects, was thoroughly understood, was thoroughly purified in this way, then I claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. With his day was Maras and Brahmas, in this generation with his ascetics, Brahmins, his day was in humans. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. There is no more renewed existence. That's a great claim of the Buddha's enlightenment. And so, first of all, I point out. He always says, when I came to awaken to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment, you should point that out because you know that sometimes, like in every spiritual group, you know, we have trying to outdo your neighbours. And sometimes I've actually seen this written in some books by 
not all parts, but some parts of Mahayana who say, well, if once you're fully enlightened, just like a Buddha, you can actually practice a bit more and become a Bodhisattva. And, you know, that's, that's yucky. That's always like being a one-upmanship, which is not part of being a Buddhist. But the Buddha says, unsurpassed. Can't go further than this. So that's important. And also, uh, what is enlightenment, the liberation of the mind? This is my last birth. There is no more renewed existence. So after the Buddha passes away, that's it. Gone. So you can't say that after the Buddha passed away, he exists in some realm somewhere. No more existence. We know that sometimes people would say that. They would say the Buddha is no more. But Jesus Christ is alive. <laughs> and the answer to that, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. You can see the Buddha today. How can you see the Buddha today when the Buddha disappeared? The Buddha doesn't exist anymore, but there's a famous saying, he or she who sees the Buddha sees a Dhamma. She who sees a Dhamma sees the Buddha. Can you see the Dhamma today? Yes. So you can see the Buddha. A different idea of what the Buddha is. Not the person, that's gone. But what distinguish that being from all other beings? The Dhamma. That you can see today. That never dies. Da, da, da. So the Buddha lives. Okay. <laughs> okay, Chris, what have I said now? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Jesus has got into the phone. My phone, sorry. <laughs> You get strung up one of these days, Bhante. <laughs> um, Bhante is the causal conditions for a bodhisattva, a Pacheka oh. Buddha, and then someone asks him to teach. Is that how it works? Because that's how, that's how it works with the Buddha. But a Pacheka Buddha also doesn't come back again. They're not a bodhisattva. So what's the causal conditions for a bodhisattva? That is a, a, an arahat who decides to teach. In fact, the Buddha was a bodhisattva. I mean, he stuck around ah. for, 80, for 35 years. Now, now you're making a very good point. The, the actual the meaning of a bodhisattva is someone who sacrifices themselves for all other beings. And an arahat is the best of those. They're the ones who actually know what they're talking about and the ones who can help other people the most. I often say that say, if I have a heart condition... And if I have an operation, I want a graduate cardiologist, not a student, to cut me open and do a heart operation. I want someone who's graduated. Same if you want a teacher, you want someone, at least an Aryan, to teach you, not someone who is, you know, hasn't been enlightened yet. And the Bodhisattvas are, by definition, unenlightened. They put off their enlightenment to help others. So they're like the student doctors. Basically, they don't know really what they're doing. They've got good hearts... Know, good intentions, but not enough wisdom. I think there's a bit of terminology here, but yeah, with the Mahayanas. Uh, yeah, indeed. But the real Bodhisattva, in the sutras, you'll find the word Bodhisattva only occurs uh, related to Siddhartha Gautama after his birth, actually just before his birth, when he descended from the Tusa to heaven up until his enlightenment. That's the only time he called himself a Bodhisattva. Thank you. No, he wasn't called a Bodhisattva. No. no. He never called himself. They have the uh, 
Gatikara Sutta. That's the Sutta in Majjhimilikaya, Gatikara. No, six, no, I forget now, 50 something. That is where the uh, Buddha uh, recalls his previous life, Anakasapa, as the, the Brahmin Jyotipala. Never calls himself a Bodhisattva in that Sutra. The only time you see the word Bodhisattva in the Sutras is when you're talking about the Buddha from descent from the Tusita realm uh, into the, his mum's body and then up to the time of his enlightenment. Yeah. The Jatikas are not really part of the sutras. They were known to be added a long time afterwards. There are some Jatikas who are actually in the sutras. That is one of them. Jatikas means previous life stories. And that is one which is authentic because that was actually in the sutras. What we know as the Jatikas today, uh, every scholar understands, they've been added to there are a lot of like myths and stories from ancient days. And of course the hero was always called the Buddha in a previous life. Okay. So unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. Now there is no more renewed existence. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, the bhikkhus of the group of five delighted in the Blessed One's statement. It's all right to delight in the Dhamma. So don't think, oh, I'm delighting, I must be making a mistake. Let go of your attachment to listen to the Dhamma. This is a happiness of the mind, to be encouraged. They delighted in what the Blessed One had said. And while this discourse was being spoken, there arose in the Venerable Kondanya the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma. In other words, he saw it. And this is the expression of entering the stream, becoming the first Aryan after the Buddha. Whatever is subject to origination, all of that is subject to cessation. Wherever it arises, it's going to cease, totally. And what did he particularly mean? All these five candors. The body is subject to cessation, yeah, most people know that. The Vedana, perception, yeah, okay. Will, subject to cessation. And the six consciousnesses, including the mind consciousness, is subject to stop. It's not eternal. There's not a soul there which is going to last forever. It's all subject to cessation. Seeing the great emptiness, there's nothing there. That's why when you see there's nothing there, it's no longer scary. You're not losing anything because you never had anything to begin with. <sighs> so, and when the wheel of the Dhamma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, here they call it the wheel of the Dhamma. And a wheel is something which keeps rolling, rolling. And this is the, the reason why it's called the, the wheel of the Dhamma teaching. When the wheel of the Dhamma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, the earth-dwelling devas raised a cry. They have all these different levels of beings which were in the Buddhist cosmology at that time and are probably mostly here today. The earth-dwelling devas, you may call them the fairies or something, raised a cry. At Baranasi, in the deer park at Isipatana, the unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma has been set in motion by the Blessed One. This is the great part which cannot be stopped 
by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. As I say these days, the genie is out of the bottle. Can't be put back in again. The truth is out there. That's, who said that? Something That was... Next <laughs> okay, this is Buddhism. So it can't actually be hidden anymore. It can't be stopped. And it's a beautiful thing because it hasn't been stopped. 2,600 years, still going. It's in Australia, all over the world. Crikey. Can't be stopped. Having heard that cry, by any ascetic Brahma, Deva, Mara, God, or by anyone in the world, having heard the cry of the earth-dwelling Devas, the Devas of the realm of the four great kings, they go up every level, heard a cry. At Baranasi, the unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, which cannot be stopped by anyone in the world. Having heard the cry of the Devas of the realm of the four great kings, the ne next level, the Tower Kings of Devas, the next level, the Yama Devas, the next level, the Tusita Devas, the next level, the Nimanavati Devas, the next level, the Paranimita Wasawati Devas, and the next level, the Devas of Brahma's company. And that's where Brahma's Hampati was. So he heard that the Buddha got enlightened. That's why he came and congratulated him and asked him to teach. And it's interesting, me and the Paranimita Wasawati Devas, the head honcho, the chief of that realm, is none other than Mara. That's where Mara hangs out. The realm which controls other beings. I call him the control freak in chief. So when he heard the Buddha got enlightened, he went down, not to ask him to teach, but the total opposite. Ah, oh, don't teach, you're too much problems and difficulty. You know, you go and teach and people won't understand and they'll criticize you and they'll ask you all these questions and they'll do this and all that. Well, it's a waste of time. Just forget it. Just enjoy yourselves. Mara did that to make sure <laughs> that no one else got rid, got out of samsara. And the Buddha said, no, I will not leave. I will teach. That was after Brahma Hasampati. I think Brahma Hasampati got there first. Mara came there afterwards. And Brahma Sampati said, so Mara, sorry, the Buddha replied, I will not leave samsara until I have created the four assemblies of monks, of bhikkhunis, of lay men and lay women, until they're flourishing, strong, many enlightened. Once I've done that, then I will leave. And I love saying that because that was from the very first weeks of enlightenment. The Buddha put out his plan for his, the rest of his life to make bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, lay men, lay women, good Buddhists. And it's only later on, three months before his enlightenment, he said, well, I've done that now. Lots of bhikkhus, lots of bhikkhunis, lots of lay men, lots of lay women, many enlightened, so I can go now, I've done my job. So, uh, that was actually said to Mara. And Brahma's company raised a cry, at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana, the unsurpassed wheel of the Dharma has been set in motion by the Blessed One, which cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. So on that point, I've already mentioned bhikkhunis, you know that there is a saying, people actually doubt whether this is real, where he said, if you ordain bhikkhunis, the good dharma will only last 500 years. <laughs> but, he just said here, once the wheel of dharma is set in motion, it can't be stopped. 
can't be stopped by anybody, not even bhikkhunis. So there's you know, a little bit of a sort of suspiciousness given to that saying that lasts only 500 years. Once it's out there, it can't be stopped by anybody. Thus, at that moment, at that instant, at that second, the cry spread as far as the Brahma world and this 10,000-fold world system shook, quaked, and trembled, and an immeasurable glorious radiance appeared in the world, surpassing the divine majesty of the devas. Whereas, our oh, Peter's over here, he was talking about the eight reasons for earthquakes in the world. And one of them is like a Buddha appearing, and uh, sometimes there must be, when an arahat sometimes uh, appears, there must be many, many enlightened beings in Indonesia and also in um, Japan, where all the earthquakes are. <laughs> no, I mean, that's only a joke, sorry. I'll forget, forget about that. I'm going to get strung up again. <laughs> and then the Blessed One uttered this inspired utterance. Because he knew, mind reading, that Kondanya, this monk, had understood that all that's subject to arising is subject to ceasing, disappearing totally. Kondanya has indeed understood. Seen the Dhamma. Kondanya has indeed understood. So he gave this incredible teaching, he realized someone had understood it. In this way, the Venerable Kondanya acquired the name Anya Kondanya. Kondanya, who was understood. So, does anyone want to be called Anya Chris? Anya Hugh? <laughs> Anya Lynn? Anya anyone? <laughs> Anya John? <laughs> and that's the first teaching, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta. Any last questions? Yeah. I think it's more of a metaphor, you know, because otherwise, you're saying about if earthquakes in this religion, other religions always say great earthquakes happened. And even in English we say it's an earth-shattering event. You know, the West Coast Eagles won the premiership. It was an earth-shattering event. And the earth doesn't get shattered. Yeah, it doesn't. So I think it's more likely to be a metaphor. Because otherwise, every time someone got enlightened, there'd be so much destruction. The kings and people say, look, please don't get enlightened. Or go somewhere else to get enlightened, not in our city, because we can't always... You're dying right, always rebuilding all the towns and places and the roads. <laughs> I agree with you there. Ah, oh, the radiance, yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting, is that a metaphor, just... Sometimes when incredible events happen, you know, you think well, maybe there is this, the mind creates a great psychic light, a flash of light. Yeah, maybe so those people who are a little bit sensitive can actually see a light. Wow. What's the difference sometimes between the mental world and the physical world? The mental world governs the physical world. Yeah. Oh, John, just a couple of questions. Um, is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path um, carried on through all Buddhist traditions? All Buddhist traditions? Now, you put the question the other way around. 
Anywhere where the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path are carried on, that is called a Buddhist tradition. So Mayana, all the branches of Mayana follow the same? If they are following the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path, they are a Buddhist tradition. doesn't matter. Many people in Theravada don't follow the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path. Many people in Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana, Hahayana, whatever yana. So this is actually asked, uh, based on the Buddha's answer to the monk Upawana in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. He says, in other religions, can people get enlightened? And the Buddha gave a brilliant answer. Where they follow the Eightfold Path, they now get enlightened. Doesn't matter what you call yourself. Doesn't matter what color robes you wear, what gender you are, what sexual orientation you are what race you are, how old you are, how young you are, it's what you do. If you follow the Eightfold Path, then you'll get enlightened. Yep. What I mean is, is it actually taught as what's in here? Ah, taught. It really, that's an interesting one because there's, uh, there's always movements, I see, in all parts of Buddhism to go back to the early teachings of Buddhism. Now that group in Japan which I went to in early December, that's one of the main reasons I volunteered to go there because they said they saw the decline of Buddhism in Japan and they wanted to bring it back to the early traditions of Buddhism. And there was a group in Thailand, a monk who um, stayed here for a few months. Uh, we have something in common, he was also expelled from Wat Bapong, that's uh, Ajahn Kukrit. And he's becoming quite popular in Thailand now by just going back to, he calls it Buddha Wachana, in other words of the Buddha. Uh, trying to get back to the original teachings. So in all types of Buddhism, sometimes we always tend to drift away from the original teachings. And there's always movements in all parts of Buddhism to come back to the original teachings. And everybody agrees that the original teachings are Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. That is understood by all traditions. And the Pali Canon? The Pali Canon, most people, yeah, they say the Pali Canon, the Dwipitaka, not the Tripitaka. Abhidharma is added. Arjun, um, second question is, uh, world systems that are hundreds and thousands of light years from here, can there be another Buddha up here? Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, why not? Because uh, my understanding of a Buddha is like the once, you know, the Buddhism sort of vanishes little by little, it can't be stopped, it just fades away. So once it fades away by Anicca, then the, someone else comes along, an Arahat, uh, becomes enlightened, usually uh, like the Buddha, a once returner, gets reborn, gets enlightened in this life. And then once it gets enlightened in this life, some of them will teach. And the first Arahat which teaches is a Buddha. So yeah, of course, why not? Another interesting question because Cecilia was talking about cyborgs. Can artificial intelligence uh, be enlightened? Can an artificial intelligence practice the Eightfold Path? Can that be a vehicle for people to become enlightened? <laughs> and that answer to that question will be answered at the conference, which is coming in August. Please buy your tickets as soon as possible, if you're interested in the answer. <laughs> Okay, it's uh, time to actually to go. come to the conference. Yes. An untold, unspecified number. I don't know. Uh, you don't know. But lots.
But anyway, I think we better go now because my lift is waiting. So thank you all for listening to the Dhamma Chakrabhatana Sutta. Please take this back with you because it's a great sutra. If um, you don't need it, uh, you give it to Lynn and Lynn will have to shred it because you can't throw this in the bin. It's an important sutra. Oh yeah, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Ahang Sama Sambudo Bhagawa Buddha Bhagawanda Abhiwa Demi Suakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammanamasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami And please excuse me for rushing off, but I've got a, a nephew coming from England. I'm meeting him at five thirty. <laughs>